to the Cross-Border Interviews Political Roundtable. Welcome back to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast Political Roundtable, our last of the season, our third of the season, but our last one before we take our summer hiatus. We are back with our political pundit reporter slash all-around amazing political podcast host, conservative like me, host Jennifer Sanford. Jennifer, thank you so much again for doing this. Thank you for having me. Sometimes I wonder if you think to yourself, you know what? Jenna is not getting enough hate mail. We should have her back on. We should have this conservative back on this podcast. Exactly. That's I'm always thinking about the hate mail. Who who doesn't love hate mail from time to time? I've only gotten five in the last month and a half, so it's all good. Well, I'm <laughs> all, here for you. All stemming from the, the great leader of the People's Party of Canada, Maxine Bernier, who we had on the show back in January. So thank you so much, Maxine, for giving us hate mail. <laughs> that guy always delivers. That guy always delivers. Um, we have a lot to digest today because in a week in politics is a long time. A month in politics is even longer. We have um, about six topics that we want to talk about. Jennifer and I have talked over what we wanted to talk about, what we didn't want to talk about. And we came to six amazing uh, topics that we can talk about. But the first one is uh, a topic that is rallying a lot of uh, conservatives here in the West uh, to change our constitution. But the constitution changes that Premier Francis, Francois Legault, Premier of Quebec, Bill 96. I want to make sure I got that bill right here. The Languages Act in Quebec. Um, This is Quebec trying to say that French is the national language in Quebec. But uh, Jennifer, I wanted to start with you. What are your initial thoughts on 96 and how it's going to affect not only today's constitutional uh, talks, but in the future? Okay, so there's two things on this because I am aware we have six topics today and I have an entire (laughs) podcast of my own on conservative like me around Bill 96. You can check it out uh, on your own where I sort of break down all the parts of it. But let's be clear around two things. The first thing is that Bill 96 has the veneer of being about languages, declaring uh, French as the as the official language and only language of Quebec. But really what this bill is, is it's the first really Trojan horse uh, in, in sort of moving away from national unity, because it, what it really does is it allows Quebec to say we are a nation. Uh, we are not just a province. We, as as the as the province of Quebec, we form a nation, and it really is like a Marie Antoinette masterclass because they're going to get their cake and eat it too. They're going to have nation status, which gives them greater power, and it's also going to allow them to bring you know you know all of their MPs and leadership and still participate in equalization and still have much more to say about things like national energy pro- projects or energy projects uh, that are originating from the West. And so it's important to note this first piece of this, which is that Francois Legault may be a federalist today, but the minute they elect a separatist government, you've already wheeled in your Trojan horse to say, if we are a nation, then how easy is it for us to separate from this idea of one Canada? So that's really, to me, is what Bill 96 is really about. Like, yeah, okay, we know they want to preserve the French language. We understand the appeal of that, but they're they're capitalizing on this political reality that every political party, if they want to be elected, needs the support of Quebec. So if Quebec wants this, there's no choice but but for it to have a high amount of salience and and supportability. 
the other piece of this that can't be forgotten here is that if it seems like the constitution is open for some track changes, then what is the opportunity now for the West? And this is where I feel genuinely dissatisfied with the fact that we don't have this big, you know, the charismatic Rene Levesque leader here in the West. Um, I, you know, I think it could be like a Brad Walsh, Scott Moe type of character. I really do think that if we have a fighting chance for something in the West, uh, it will, it will originate for them. Makes me sad because both of those people are not leaders in Alberta. Um, but you know, now we need to ask a lot of questions, right? Like should a nation qualify for equalization, right? We're about to have this ridiculous meaning, meaningless equalization referendum that, you know, you know, Albertans could vote purple monkey dishwasher. It won't matter. Uh, we have no, there's no say. Um, it's just something that gives the allure or illusion that, you know, the, the, the provincial government in Alberta is listening. But I think Alberta needs to get really vocal here to say, wait a minute, if there's nationhood for Quebec, what is there now for the West? Is there a discussion that we are, we are a nation also because we provide um, natural resources to this country uh, or is our cultural history of, you know, the wagon ride and, and, and the wild, wild west enough to distinguish us. I think if every action has an equal but opposite reaction, then we need to be asking ourselves, what does this mean for the west? And so I, I don't support nationhood for for Quebec. I think it's so complicated in terms of, of, of how things will work procedurally. Uh, but if it seems like it's going to be a go and it looks like it is going to be a go unless Jody race, unless Jody Wilson-Raybould can continue her opposition of it, um, then if it is in fact going to go forward, then what's the deal for the West? What's the coordinated deal for the West? Well, and I like how you said it was a Trojan horse because it is the tipping point of the nationhood of uh, Quebec. But we have to remember this started way back in Stephen Harper's reign. Stephen Harper was yes. the one who brought forward the motion to recognize uh, Quebec as a nation. I would say all but a few voted for it, if I'm not mistaken. And I think the current prime minister, the then leader of the third uh, party or the leadership candidate, Justin Trudeau, voted against it because, like you said, it is a slippery slope that we can see ourselves getting on of dividing a united Canada, because I think we are a better united entity than divided. And the moment you start picking and choosing which parts of the country is a nation and which not it's then saying to other parts of the country, Hey, we don't accept you becoming a nation because if Alberta wants to tomorrow say, Hey, we're a nation, then they ha would have to let them because they've let Quebec do it. Yeah. And they won't like, let's be honest, they won't. And so what this then really becomes about is, uh, Francois Legault recognizing that Quebec has an opportunity to amass more power and he's found a a provocative and brilliant way to do it. And the question now becomes as, as Canada and as Canadians, is is that is that working for us? Because, you know, equality, I think, is an important Canadian value. I mean, certainly a lot of the ire that we have in the West is built on this idea that we feel like there's asymmetrical application of, of, of value uh, from the West to the East. One of the big issues that the party leaders, if we are heading into an election, which we'll be talking about later on, but if we are heading into an election, Quebec is the fortress to win a majority government. It is a fortress to win a minority or a majority government. Aaron O'Toole knows this. Justin Trudeau knows this. I would say Jagmeet Singh knows this, but let's be honest, there's probably a slight slim to none chance that he'll win a minority government. Um, Aaron O'Toole has a delegate balancing act because he is the conservative support is here in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and BC. If he is seen to be cozying up to Legault and the Quebec votes, 
he might alienate enough voters from the Western section of his party to go to the Maverick party, to go to the people's party. How does Aaron O'Toole balance this? Because he has to win votes in Quebec. Stephen Harper did it with the nation vote, but he has to win votes in Quebec, but also keep his base in the West. How does he do it? Well, first of all, uh, and I, I, I say this regardless of the issue with Quebec, I say this on every issue. I am always concerned by a federal conservative government that will assume that it has locked up its support in the West. I think when you assume that my vote has been, uh, you know, cast and, and supported and, and you treat it as an assumption, shame on you. Shame on you. That's not leadership. That's not adaptive leadership. And that's not tolerable in this country. Every vote is earned. I feel like I feel like we need to start talking, socializing that term more. Like every vote is earned. Uh, votes are not purchased. Um, votes are not, uh, you know, it's it's through good policy and 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 provocative persuasion. That's it. Uh, so, you know, I think where we need to to really look for Aaron O'Toole is, you know, he has no choice but to cozy up to to Quebec. That's his only pathway to electability. Um, he'll never he'll never be able to pull it out with uh, by you know by cracking, um, you know, certain uh, metropolitan or rural areas in in Ontario. He needs Quebec. Uh, so what he needs to then do is he needs to say a deal. For for Quebec. Uh, and then here's the equal deal for Alberta. And he needs to have the political courage to then talk about that deal for Alberta on the, on a national stage in places like Toronto and Ottawa and Quebec city. And, um, it, it, there's a duality to this. There has to be an ability. It just reminds me a lot of what um, Mulroney tried to pull off in 88, which was this idea of like, we need to create an equal bridge between the two and, and not ha have um, Ontario be, be factored into that because they'll do their own thing. Uh, but we need to look at, you know, what opportunities can we create um, for, for the West through good, good economic uh, and good trade policy and what opportunities then can we create for, um, for Quebec, not with a vision of, of, of them getting a same deal, but a vision of them getting a deal that works for them at their place and time in Confederation. One of the other areas I want to touch on before we switch subjects here is Quebec's recognition of the, uh, the Constitution. It has not been a signer of the Constitution. And now no. they're, they're openly saying, we want to change the Constitution. Is it time to open it back up to get them to sign and say, you know what, if you want to change it, you have to sign on to this thing and agree to everything that's in it and stop, stop dancing around the issue of, are we going to be part of Canada or not? You know what? That's an important point. I think if, if you're a follower of history, you cannot forget that the 1982, um, the 1982 constitution that Quebec never signed onto is now the very, and all the other provinces did is the very document that Quebec now needs to leverage now to get nationhood. It is, it is a great piece of political irony and play that I, that I hope, um, I hope we recognize and remember, but it's a moot point. Now they don't, they don't need to commit to it. They're going to get everything they want. Every leader has said we're good with nationhood. Let's, let's proceed. Um, you know, chiefly among them, um, you know, the prime minister of, of Canada, Justin Trudeau, whose very own father, just talk about police, like piece yeah. of political history, whose very own father said, I, I will not, I will not allow Quebec to be a separate deal. They are part of Quebec and are they a part of Canada and unity is, is vitally important. And anyone who believes otherwise is uninformed. Well, look at how that apple falls from the tree. And here we are. Um, but I do think that that political parties should be held to account for putting politics over over national unity. 
it, it this this story is not just ending here. I think in about two months' time, when we come back for our August roundtable, we will be talking about this issue as well. Because I, unless there's an election, the leaders will be ponying up to Legault as quickly as possible because his polling numbers in Quebec are surprisingly high, and the leaders of the federal parties know that they need to get his support to win Quebec. And I think Justin Trudeau knows that more than anyone. And that's why he's very quiet on a lot of issues that are happening in Quebec, which brings us to our next issue that we want, I want to talk about is um, the horrendous attack, terrorist attack. And I will say that uh, full force because it was a terrorist attack of four innocent Canadians mowed down by and I'm not going to say the guy's name because I do not believe that we should ever give yeah, credit to exactly. But four innocent uh, Canadians died from someone getting pissed off that they were Muslim and they ran them over. Um, we saw a national outcry over the last few months or last few weeks, I should say, uh, around the state of Islamophobia in Canada. Uh, first off, I wanted to give you a moment to uh, let just tell our listeners and our watchers what your thoughts are on what happened, but also what's the next step? How do we rectify the situation to ensure people feel safe? Because you are hearing from uh, uh, people of all faiths come together and say, we need to make sure people of the Muslim background feel safe in Canada. How do we do that? So, you know, I did an entire podcast season um, where I tried to figure out what our Canadian values are, right? I, I, yep. I, I openly asked, like, who are we and what do we want as people? And one of, one of the things that has been revealed is that what happened to that family is intolerable to our values and really gives us pause to not only just ask the question of how do we go forward, but how do we look at all of the moments that got us to this point that someone could rationally justify such an act of violence? You know, that individual is being charged with terrorism. That is the right legal call uh, for what happened. And I'm pleased to see that that's, that's occurring, but you know, Jim Prentice lost a provincial election because he asked Albertans to look in the mirror. And now as a nation, we have to now look in the mirror and say, what, what moments got us to this point? And I, I know you're going to give some examples here and, and um, I'll give you the space to do that. But um, conservatives especially should be looking at what did we enable? What did we dog whistle? What did we embolden as a party uh, to, to even create a, a monochrome of acceptance of, of being a nation that allows us to be an us and them nation. We are a one people um, country. And when acts like this occur, it, it highlights that we still have work to do and we need to look in the mirror. And it does bring up the point of things of the past uh, influence the things of the future. One of the most prominent things that has happened in the last, I would say, seven years, 2015's uh, general election, Stephen Harper, Jason Kenney, and Chris Alexander, if I'm not mistaken, it was Chris Alexander, the then Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Jason Kenney uh, came out and said, "We are, if re-elected, we would introduce a barbaric culture practices tip line. This is where Canadians would be able to call into a tip line and say, there's something happening at my neighbor's house that is not Canadian. It goes back to the saying of old stock Canadians. 
it was a line used in 2015. It was a line used in, I would say, even in the last provincial election. But it is a culture of negativity towards anyone who does not look like the leader. Anyone who is not, and I say this with knowing that I'm white, you're white, we are two white people talking about Islamophobia, white. <laughs> Let's be yep. honest. Yep. The conservative party have had to reckon with that announcement since 2015. In the last two weeks, we've had two prominent former cabinet ministers under uh, Stephen Harper, Michelle Rempel and Tim Uppel. Uppel, I, I apologize if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, have come out and said, we should have spoken up during that time. Is this the come to Jesus moment that conservatives need to rectify before they can start winning over the Islamic voter base that while might not traditionally vote conservative, some may vote conservative, they need to win for the next general election? Yeah, so, um, you know, good on good on those two members of parliament for um, for saying something. Um, I think there's more MPs that need to come forward and, and say that that kind of reckless rhetoric won't be tolerated and has consequences. But I'm not prepared at this moment in the rawness of what happened to see this as a pivot to to capture a new voting base. I think it should be incredibly provocative that that Aaron O'Toole, as the leader of the conservatives, um, you know, went to the vigil to to acknowledge the, the loss of of those four family members and was booed. You know, that's 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 the sins of the party. Um, and so I'm not prepared to, to look at it as, as a way to, to score political points or, or to look at increasing a conservative voter base. I'm looking at this as an opportunity for conservatives to say, you know, we need, we need to have more comprehensive thinking around unity in this country and creating a space for everybody. I mean, you know, many people who, who, um, you know, certainly are born in this country, but come to this country from other parts of the world, you know, they identify with a lot of conservative values. They really do, you know, responsible spending, you know, a place for the market, you know, economic entrepreneurial uh, ship um, and yet seemingly can't find a footing within the party because the party is is stuck in old paradigms of, of intolerance and and and, you know, une unacceptable, um, you know, antiquated beliefs around us and them. And so, you know, the the conservative party is in is in a time of of, um, you know, iterative reimagination, trying to ask itself, who can we be uh, to, to better represent the momentum of Canada? This is an important part of this. Uh, and it begins with with humbly recognizing the need to look in the mirror and and challenge statements that that uh, don't even have the veneer of 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 being tolerant um, and are just unacceptable, um, unacceptable and un-Canadian. And I will and I will be the first to admit it's not even the conservatives that need to look in the mirror on this issue. All Canadians need to look at liberals. Yes. NDP, because while we might seem like the tolerant, like the liberals might seem like a tolerant party, the NDP might be a tolerant, uh, tolerant party. There is still an underlying tone when it comes to uh, issues of uh, race, sexual orientation, gender, that some parties are still struggling with. And I will be first to admit that some reasons why I left the liberal party was because I'm sick and tired of playing the uh, 
the card issue. Hey, I'm the gay Canadian. Hey, I'm the straight white male Canadian. Hey, I'm the woman Canadian. No, we're Canadians. We're Canadians first. And then afterwards, then we can identify. And that's how I always will view Canada. We should always be one. And this is why I'm not in favor of nationhood for Quebec because Quebec is Canada, 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 Canada. So all parties need to look in the mirror on this and to quote Jim Prentice. And I can't believe that we've mentioned him more than probably longer than he's probably was probably premier of this province, but we need to look in the mirror. And I hate to say it because that's what lost him the election, but we honestly need to take a a page out of Jim Prentice's book and look in the mirror and say, okay, what have I done in the past to amplify rhetoric that has potentially caused harm for other people? And how do I hold and how do I hold others to account when they do it in my space? That's the other thing is that is that the silent part of this, like the silence of I knew this was wrong in in my party. I knew that my party stood for this. You know, you have to you have to call it out and say I'm vocal enough to say that I I will check myself, but I will check you also. Um, Yeah, I just think that that's a kind of a part of it. But, um, you know, just to wrap this out, you know, what happened in London is. um, is Horrendous. you know quite utterly tragic. I I think quite often about the the one survivor. They I mean they were family of five that were walking and 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 how that nine how that year old will, boy will be how, left parentless for the rest of his life, and how that will shape his understanding of what his country is. Yeah, like uh, so yeah. terrible. On the guilt train that we are going down here because we all have our crosses to bear. Um, and I use that term lightly here. Earlier this month in Kamloops, British Columbia, the remains of 215 residential school. Uh, I, I know I, I want to use this word correctly. Indigenous students were found. Um, this is a black mark on Canadian history. Um, if there's one thing that Canada has to has to bear its negative atonement for it is the residential school system that up until the 1990s was still active it was still a a organization that was actively taking kids away from their first nations families and putting them into a school system to de-indigenize indigenous take take their background and take their history and take their culture away from them this is something that all Canadians should be freaking pissed off at and be upset with. And the part, and I'm going to give it to you in a few seconds here, but I need to rant here for a few seconds. So I do apologize. Okay. Any, Canadian, any Canadian who says they did not know anything about this before uh, June, 2021 was not paying attention in school. I learned about the residential school system in grade 10. I learned about the horrendous things that were happening to indigenous people, Aboriginal communities in grade 10, grade 10, 2000, late 2000s. We should have known that this was a possibility that we would be finding remains of children, not only in Kamloops, but we have found more. 215 in Kamloops. We found some in Brandon, Manitoba. We found some in Regina. We are still finding them. If we looked at every single residential school in Canada, I would put dollars to dimes that we would find remains of Indigenous community members, students, kids, kids. This is horrendous. And yet again, I'm a white man and I know I should not be 
as angry, but it is a black mark and we should be angry. We should be angry about how we treated these people, how we treated these children, how we killed these kids. There, <laughs> there's my rant. You can be, you can be angry because That's- I've been following all of the media coverage where they refer to them as indigenous or first nations children. And that is accurately what they were, but they were also Canadian children. They're also yes. our children. They are, are parts of our community. Um, and I, I think that that's, I think that that is an important distinction to make. And, and the other thing that I'll say, and perhaps a bit controversial, so you can send your hate mail directly to me. I'm, I'm really unsatisfied with the reporting of, you know, 215 children. I'm, I'm unsatisfied with that reporting. We know that there are 4,100 missing children uh, based from atrocities in the residential school system. And we know that there is also tremendous trauma and capital loss from those who are survivors of the residential school system. So we can acknowledge that 215 remains were found. And that number is in, in, in its entirety, a tragedy but there are 4,100 missing children and the journey to, to find those remains and honor those remains and recognize the impact of, of this is only just beginning. One part of the equation that I want to make sure I get on record here, because this is the part of the equation that I think most people forget while this happened in Canada, Canada is not only to blame the church. And yet again, if you want to send hate mail for the church issue, send it to crossborderphotography at gmail.com. I'd be happy to receive it because the church is also responsible for what happened to those children in those schools. Yet again, Canadians, we we were the we we built the schools, we housed these children, but the church was there as well. This brings me to the topic that I want to talk about. And I, we rant it for a little bit there, but I do want to get that on record. Earlier this week, the House of Commons tried to pass a uh, unanimous motion by the member of Timmins, and I forget the full name of his writing, but Charlie Angus uh, saying that we need to ask the papal to officially apologize for their role in the residential school system. So they're asking Pope Benedict, Pope, no, Pope. Pope, no, what's the Pope right now? Pope Francis. Pope Francis. Pope Benedict XVI was the last one. Pope Francis to apologize. To come to Canada and apologize, to be Come to Canada, yes. Come to Canada and apologize. The papal released a statement on a Sunday uh, service afternoon, which was not good enough. He needs to get his butt here. And I know I'm a lonely Canadian and I do not dictate what the papal does, but he needs to get his ass here and he needs to apologize for the misdeeds that the Catholic Church did to these children and to these families and to Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Yes. And every Canadian cardinal and bishop should stand behind him. Yes. As that apology takes place. This brings me to the and yet again, you're a conservative. So this is the great thing about having conservative here. The conservative infighting over this apology, uh, the member for, and I, I'm going to, I, I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong, but Garnet Guinness, genius, Garrett, is that his name? Garrett, Port- Garrett, yeah. Garrett, Garrett, Garrett. <laughs> there you go. The member, Garrett. the member, for, the member from Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan. 
I, I was, I was going to say Fort Saskatchewan Sherwood Park, but Fort Saskatchewan Sherwood Park, uh, Fort Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan, and Michelle Rempel got into a tiff this week. Michelle Rempels came out and said, hey, yes, we should be calling on the papal to do this. Gar- Garnet said, no, uh, they've already done it because it is, and I want to quote him correctly here, in his Facebook post, he, were, he said, residential schools were an evil government policy and churches should not have pr- participated in the policy in any way. And then, end quote, and then the beginning of the next quote, the government of Canada bears primary responsibility for what happened. No, it doesn't. There's multiple people who we should be blaming for this, but the member for Fort Saskatchewan, Sherwood Park, or however you want to pronounce it, is putting the blame squarely on the Canadian government. Do you believe that this is true? So couple of things to unpack there. So this Charlie, Charlie Angus's motion. So this is an NDP motion and you we're not surprised that it's coming from the NDP. Jagmeet Singh was, was, was pretty, pretty choked, um, trying to, trying to, you know, you know, reconcile and, and communicate his party's position on this. Um, it, it, it had a two, it had a two-parter. This is what I think, uh, that, that was really failed to cover is that it had a two-parter is that part number one, like the superstar part of this, of this motion was, was a papal apology an apology from the Pope. Um, but right underneath, uh, was, was, I think the piece of political dynamite there, which is that the church needed to turn over everything, all of their documentation, all of the records, everything that they know, everything that was hidden, everything that is atrocious and will make us sick to our stomach about what, what happened. Um, and, and we'll, and we'll give, you know, not meaning, but we'll give uh, this is sort of this, this incredible, um, you know, uh, bolstered narrative from, from what residential school survivors have, have been talking about, uh, for, for, for generations now. Um, so it's important to note that the, both of those things matter. Um, and, and they do matter equally. You and I are on the same page that a papal apology is, is beyond overdue. Um, the, the fact that, uh, that it won't occur, I think is, is an incredible stain on, on, uh, on, on the Catholic church and, and really demonstrates that they learned nothing, um, from, from the sexual abuse, uh, bullshit that they went through. Um, and, and that's disappointing. Um, but I think we, if we just take a step back, um, you know, Garrett's decision to vote against this. And let's be very, very important is that Michelle Rempel was right when she said, we've spoken as a caucus as conservatives and we're going to support this motion and we're going to, we're going to be part of this unanimous voice. So, you know, it's always the the one lone wolf that then, you know, ruins it for everyone. It's, I'm particularly struck by this being another example of there being this acceptance within the, within the conservative party of vote your conscience Vote your conscience by its very nature is bullshit. And we see it manifest itself with, um, you know, Bill C-7 for MAID, uh, people voting their conscience. You are not there to vote for yourself. We didn't pick you to be a representative for you. We chose you to be a representative for the people, in this case, of Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan. And what I would like to know, what I would like the party leader to do is to go back to that riding and say, what would you like? Because I think your MP just spoke for himself and not actually for the people of that community. 
And, and so that's where I think we really have an opportunity here to, to unpack the, the real death of this, which is this continual propulsion of this vote, your conscience. Um, you know, I, I believe in free will and, and liberty, but you, again, you are not there as a, as a member of parliament to vote for your own personal beliefs, which I think here are disproportionately informed by, um, a loyalty to the Catholic church. Um, you are there to vote for the voice of your constituents. And I'm just willing to wager everything I've got that the constituents of that riding, if they could speak in unison outside of their, of their party, outside of their, of, of their member would say, this is ridiculous. Honor this, honor them turning over the records and, 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 and put forward that, that there should be a, a papal apology. But at 40,000 feet, because I don't want to make this about Michelle Rempel versus versus Garrett, whatever his name is. What I want to make this about is I want to make this about the fact that I think it is now time. Actually, I think we're overdue. And I think it is now time to remove this residential school business and 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 the atrocities of the of the Catholic Church outside of the political spectrum and stop seeing this as a political issue and starting to see this as a human rights issue. This is a human rights issue. We battled back for how long in the House of Commons around is it a genocide? What does genocide really mean? What is it? 4,100 missing children and the trauma of 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 thousands more um, indigenous and First Nations people. This is now a, a human rights issue and as such should not be adjudicated in the House of Commons. It should be adjudicated at the Supreme Court. We have to leverage a political system that in the past has worked for us by asking who is complicit and what role did they play in recovery? I think that is the pathway forward. And I think, you know, if I, if I hear one person say, let's commission a study to look at truth and reconciliation, part B, part C, part F, G, M, Z, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to go crazy. And I'm not a member of the indigenous community. I can't even imagine. Um, I think, you know, it's not only just looking about the past which I think has to be adjudicated um, at, at, in a legal system. The political play now is to look at how do we do right by our indigenous communities moving forward. And part and parcel with all of that, you know, just one example that comes to the top of my head is that we're the most water rich country in the world and 5,000 First Nation communities don't have running water. Are you absolutely kidding me? Are you absolutely kidding me? Look at what we've given for foreign aid to other countries to get, you know, reasonable drinking water. Are you absolutely out of your mind? Like, how is that tolerable? How is that tolerable? You know, seven. 23% of First Nations water systems have medium or high levels of, of contamination. Are you absolutely kidding me? And so this is not just about atrocities of the past, but this is about what will be a future atrocity that we have entire generations of young people who are proud of their indigenous history, who live on indigenous lands and who can't get running water. I mean, ask me how hard I'm trying right now not to say some salacious language that would change the rating of your podcast. Hey, we're already an E rated, so it's all good. But I agree. We need just, and I hate to say this because I am a globalist. I will believe that we need to work as a global entity to better the human race. But even even this weekend with the, the G7, hey, Canada is sending 100 million vaccines of COVID-19 to other countries. What about Canada? What about the issues that are going on in Canada, including the people who don't have a vaccine yet? I'm sorry, but we need to start worrying about Canadians first. And then, yes, we need to get back to worrying about the global world. But on the water issue, this has been pushed down by every political party. It's the kick of the can down the road. Hey, we will do something about it, but we don't have the money to do it. 
why are we sending money to other people if we don't have the money to worry about our own Canadian people first as well? Well, this is why I'm conservative. I realize that this is why I'm conservative because the conservative, a conservative paradigm in 2021 and beyond really recognizes that, hey, listen, if the government can't do it, why don't we embolden the market to do it? Why don't we say like, why wouldn't Aaron O'Toole say as part of my mandate on day one, I will sign a contract for the market to produce solutions to deliver water because how many governments have been unable to do that. And then we will act as an oversight body to make sure that that is safe drinking water and equitable drinking water and, and that the, that the problems being solved in a way that's affordable. I just think that that, you know, conservatism, you know, gets such a bad rap for all the garbage that it stands for. It really does stand for emboldening the market. Here's an example where that could occur, but back onto your vaccine point, cause I'm not afraid to let that go is if we had had a competent vaccine strategy and we had invested in manufacturing, which we had a facility in Edmonton ready to go, um, we wouldn't have to choose this either or do we support a global initiative to vaccinate the world or do we have to pick? The only reason we have to pick is because of the failure of the prime minister. Like, let's be very on the record. I'll be on the record on this one. Is that the only reason we have to ask ourselves, you know, how do we choose between the individual rights of Canadians and the greater good of a vaccinated country is because of the systemic failure of this government to to not only procure vaccines, but to be smart enough to understand that all of the other G7 countries were like, we need to manufacture it here and distribute it here. And that will put us in a better position for economic recovery and, and to support our fellow nations who, who simply can't who can't uh, manufacture. So that's the other flip side of that. And to piggyback onto that, because I can't let that go. Uh, today, the World Health Organization came out that Canada is the number one country in the world for first dose vaccinations. Yay. Yay. 65%. Don't look at you the betcha. fully vaccinated because then become like 39th. But let's look at the first uh, first vaccination. So we are getting shots into the arm. We are just not doing it quick enough to potentially open everything back, which leads us to our next topic, which is the best summer ever, according to Jason Kenny, because we're going to skip topic three and move it to topic four, because the transitions are just so amazing on this show. <laughs> um, earlier this month, actually, literally the last weekend, if I'm not mistaken, Friday, I think it was, Jason Kenny came out and said, hey, you need to get your vaccine because I'm in Edmonton's mass vaccination center and there is literally no one here. We have vaccines. Please come out and get your vaccine. We will give you $1 million as you get entered into a draw. Uh, some rules and regulations will apply. The issue is his rollout of that was not the best because there was a lot of confusions around who was eligible for the $1 million, who wasn't eligible for the $1 million, how you'd be eligible for the $1 million. It added more confusion. So let's just talk about, first off, the best summer ever. Put your thinking hat on, come back in August. Do you think we've had the best summer ever? Uh, I, well, I think you need to define best summer ever. I think that, uh, Canadians, uh, and Albertans specifically are going to be bound and determined to have the best summer ever. Um, there, there begins to be a point where the level of fatigue 
and, and the level of frustration rises to the point where people, you know, reach that, that point of intolerability and just say, okay, I will curate and manufacture the best summer ever for myself. I think we also have to define what that means. Is it, you know, a a safe social distancing patio with friends? Um, Is it partaking in a community event uh, that's following all of the, you know, social distancing rules? Yeah. Yeah. I think people are going to give it a go. I think the people are going to try. Um, the big outlier is going to be this Delta variant. Um, I'm terrified at, at coverage that says that it's impacting people who are fully vaccinated. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure about that, but so, yeah. Just, so just on the Delta variant, I want to just talk about that for a second, because I, I go to the Foothills hospital every day. I go to the Tom Baker cancer center every day, Monday to Friday, and there is an outbreak there. There is an outbreak at one of our hospitals of the Delta variant. It is something that people should be worrying about because the hospital staff and when I get in there, there is checks and balances that you have to jump through to get to there. Mm -hmm. So I would. And when you drive up to the foothills, you see people walking around without masks on. You see people just interacting like if they were old friends back from high school and they hadn't seen each other for 50 years and they were basically side by side without masks on. Let's shake your head. If there's an outbreak, please wear a mask in the location where the outbreak is. It's not that hard. (laughs) Yeah. Good public service announcement. And I also think like, just also, you know, I know we're tired. I know we're tired. I know we're frustrated. I know we, you know, some people are, are going knee deep into arguments about how this violates our rights. And I've seen some of that crazy, just hang in there. We're almost there. We're number one in first doses. It was a mess of a rollout, but you know, we're going to get second doses. We're going to get second doses going. Um, and you know, I, I'll be honest when I got my first vaccination, I, I cry, cried. I haven't cried since like the first Bush was elected. I I cried. I cried because I knew people that didn't make it. They didn't make it to, to being vaccinated. They got sick and, and couldn't recover. And in some cases are still recovering. And I just think that, you know, you, you do have to think in a community minded way and that gets hard after a long period of time. I acknowledge that that's hard, but I also acknowledge how much like it is really remarkable to walk in a, in a space where there's a lot of people and everyone does have a mask. I know we've given a lot of airtime to people who are anti-maskers, don't want to wear a mask, don't wear it properly, come up with some bull excuse why they can't, but it is quite remarkable that we as a society have embraced an understanding. And, and especially when I see young people say, excuse me, you need to stand one hockey stick away from me. I I think, wow, like we really have figured out how to keep ourselves safe and work as a community. And I think that we've, we've done better than, than the moments where we've done poorly. So that matters back to the, the best summer ever. Um, you know, I would have liked to have start with best rollout announcement ever. I it's important to remember, I am a PR person and I'm also a political person. And when I see them continue to blow these announcements, it drives me crazy. Like Public relations day one will teach you, you need to have an FAQ that explains it, that details everything. Maybe if some of the, his infrastructure spent less time fighting uh, with, with insequential people on Twitter and spent more time just with disciplined, good public relations, we wouldn't have this mess of a problem. And also if you had someone in the room who could say like, Hey, um, just from a public relations perspective, uh, this dinner choice or this, uh, talking point about alcohol or this rollout announcement probably isn't going to land the way you think it's going to land. And it, and it, um, you know, it really gives the suggestion, which is starting to be a systemic problem that you fundamentally believe that Albertans are stupid. 
And that's starting to drive me crazy. Uh, starting, it's been driving me crazy since he got in that big blue truck. But um, it's it's driving me really nuts now. Is that this was very simple to say? No, anyone who's had a vaccine is eligible. You know, this isn't just about trying to get you know extra money to my base, who I perceive as being you know a little bit you know less interested in being vaccinated. I think that it was so important for him to say in that announcement. I am so proud of every Albertan who went and got a first dose. And then when they were eligible for a second dose, got a second dose without ever needing an incentive. This incentive exists to try and and capture all of the people who are lagging behind, who you tried to persuade and I tried to persuade and wouldn't do it. And now we're going to see if we can, we can get them to these mass vac sites so that we can, we can open up the world. Um, well, the fact the that, that wouldn't it have been that great that- to hear him say that. Exactly. The funny part about that Monday announcement of, hey, we're now going to tell you how this whole rollout of this million dollars for the three million dollars rolled out in one million dollars each month is going to work. He didn't have all the answers. He kept on saying, hey, if if you get vaccinated or if your name gets pulled, I can't tell if you've actually just ran out and gotten a vaccination to prove that you've gotten a vaccination. And I'm sorry. You are the government. I know you shouldn't be looking at records, but you should have an idea who has a vaccination and who doesn't have a vaccination. Is this just a random lottery of every name that's on the census list yeah, that like, you're pulling out? Like, of? A, like <laughs> AHS has that information. They're putting it in a, they're very diligent um, to, uh, to, 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 you know, yeah. Okay. So it's, uh, you know what, we can be mad about this, but we're going to be more mad when we come off the summer break and you and I are going to start with how come Alberta and Canada can't figure out a vaccine passport. We're going to be one of the only countries that's not going to have one. It's going to be a mess. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, back to, back to this best summer ever in this lottery rollout. Go ahead. Any communicator will tell you that the very first thing you would sit down and do is you would anticipate what are all the questions? What are all the answers? What do we know? What do we not know? What will Canadians want to know? What do we need to find? And instead, it's like, let's just let's just like light off those fireworks. And if it hits a whole bunch of trees and lights it on fire, we'll deal with we'll have a good fire department on standby. It's proactive communications. It continues to dog this premier. It It's just it's just being strategic and being intentional and being iterative like this tells me that he needs different support around him. It's it's so much of this single point of failure exists on the public relations front, uh, which is so fixable. It's so fixable. I mean, this province produces some of the best communications and public relations people bar none. And so what is happening? What is the disconnect? Come on, Kenny, you can do this. I know you can. Before we do move on to passports, there's one uh, topic that I want to talk about and a big, it is a very Calgary centric issue. Um, I believe, and this is going to be me being me, we will know if we have the best summer ever about the middle of July, last week of July. If the Calgary Stampede does not become a massive fourth wave of Delta variant slash whatever COVID-19 variant that is going to potentially ravage Alberta, we are we are we're good. But if the Calgary Stampede becomes a breeding ground for COVID-19, Jason Kenney not only has to look at himself for opening it up too soon, but also has to realize that maybe he should be listening to Dr. Hinshaw. And I'm not sure what advice she's giving because I'm not privy to that information, but should be going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, maybe mass gatherings is not the best idea, 
when people only have one vaccination. That's my two cents there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, so much does hinge on this on this Calgary stampede. I I will be bold enough to say that I think that if there is a massive uh, infection that that causes another lockdown, uh, it will cost Kenny his job. You think so? Yeah, I do. I do. I think the party will break from the inside and rural communities who will have. You like mean seven- it's not already? <laughs> No, r- rural cases, rural places that will have only seven cases will will absolutely their their leaders, their their uh, MLAs will revolt. And and I, I do think it will, it'll force a leadership review uh, for sure. Um, and I, I don't believe he'll come out the other side of it. I don't actually think he might even want to come out the other side of it. There'll be so much loss of political goodwill. Um, you know, th- <laughs> Listen, we, you know the Calgary Stampede is a is a flagship event, and and you know there is a there is something to be said about them, you know, trying to give it a go. I mean, cases are they they are low now, and and they continue to be low. Do I wish that we all had a second dose? Yeah, yes. Is that Kenny's fault? No. Back to you know second verse, same as the first. So much of this is hinged on on the failure of a of a federal rollout. But um, I, I again, I I'll be watching this Delta variant. I think that's going to be the only the only outlier that's really going to going to cause trouble. Uh, but you know what? The great thing here is that we have the we have the case of personal choice. If you want to stay away from the Calgary Stampede, you absolutely can. You have options still to work from home. You, you know, you can stay away from, from the area. You know, my, my heart bleeds for, for people who are essential workers who have to work with the public and, you know, who probably don't want this to happen. Um, but if you, you know, if you're fully vaccinated and you, and you feel like you want to participate, you know, you, you do have the ability to do so. I remain like I'm fully vaccinated and I'm not, I'm not sure where I stand on this, but I'll be watching the numbers, but you're absolutely right on the point of, we don't really know what uh, Hinshaw's advice has been. Uh, we, like, we don't really know what I, I, you know, if there was ever information to leak, come on, there's gotta be a leaker out there that knows. Come on, come Derek on, Fildebrandt, on. get on top of yeah. that. You, you know, everything else that's potentially happening in that party. <laughs> Good old Western standard. Get it, get it. Yeah. Um, but I want to go back to your statement about passports. Um, the vaccine passport, uh, you see that rolling out in Manitoba. Manitoba mm-hmm. just uh, recently announced that they would be getting a passport together to allow people to start traveling potentially to other parts of the province. But you see congressmen down in U- the USA, especially in New York, saying, hey, let's open up the goddamn borders because uh, our constituents in the USA want to go to Canada for some reason. I guess they really have a hankering for maple syrup up in um, New York, but good for them. But the passport is a massive deal because it is dividing the country. People believe that, hey, it is just another way to track you just like the vaccine, but it's also a way to get people to get the vaccines. And I don't want it. It's my personal choice to not get it. So why should I have to get a passport to travel? Passports, I believe, are the right venue, because if you're going to be getting on a plane, I want to be sure to heck that the people on that plane have a vaccine or have at least one vaccine. So that's my personal opinion on vaccines. What's yours? Well, you know, I, I appreciate the argument that it is a slippery slope to revealing a lot of our personal information to to bodies that don't have a right to have it. I, I get that totally. I get that argument totally. But I just think that there's a way to circumvent it by just being a little bit creative. Like I just, you know, we have a driver's license now that has, 
characters characteristics to it that can make it impossible to replicate. Um, why not at these mass vac sites or at your local service Canada or at your um, registry, you can show your first vaccination record and your second vaccination record. And they print something right then and there for you that has your name and your information. And it's got all of the, you know, unique characteristics of a, of a, of a card that can't be rep replicated. And you say very clearly, there is no coordinated record of this card. If you lose this card, you accept the consequences of being able to travel or not. Um, you own your experience here. This information is, is we've added it to your passport that you've been COVID vaccinated, maybe if you want to or not, but we are providing you with this card to travel because let me be very honest. You and I were talking before the recording started. I'm headed to Geneva at the end of August um, to do some work with the United Nations and I have two documents. One is the AHS sheet of paper that says you've had a first vaccination at a mass vac site in Calgary at the, at the TELUS Convention Center. And then my second dose I received at a local pharmacy. I was on a list and they phoned and said, can you get here in the next seven minutes? <laughs> and that's how I qualified for a second dose. Very grateful to that. Yep. Um But the document that I received from that looks exactly like something I could have manufactured at home. And so the legitimacy of these documents matters. And I think what we're having to weigh is, is the trade-off between, um, you know, sharing our personal information of, of vaccination or having documents that could be forged and, and having people being able to forge documents and, and travel and potentially continue to carry, to carry uh, COVID and COVID variants around the world. So that's, the, that's really the trade-off we have to make as a society, but I don't know why at, at these mass vac sites, you don't, you know, see a nice lady named Kathy and she just, you just show her your two pieces of paper and she just has these lock and key uh, cards and they print one. And like, I'd pay a buck and a half, like here's my buck and a half, please just give me this card and let me um, carry on with my business. Well, um, for God's sakes, know, we have Alberta health cards that are literally pieces of paper. He, this is, <laughs> this is the true of it, right? Like, I have, I have, we have Alberta healthcare cards that are a piece of flimsy paper and yikes. Like mine doesn't even have my full name on it. It just says Jay Sanford. Do you know how many Jay Sanfords there are? Like, my God, it's such a rickety system. But, but if we can have that, we can figure out something for, and I do think that we cannot rely on a federal solution. I think you're getting a sense I'm giving up on this federal government, but you know, provincially, I, I don't like the asymmetric application that some provinces will have it and some provinces don't. I've been very hard on Manitoba to say, of course, they have a, a vaccine passport. Everybody wants to get out of Manitoba. Um, <laughs> it's the home the of the land of a thousand uh, lakes or whatever you want. To yeah. Call it. <laughs> yeah. Like and unfortunately, the home of Winnipeg. But um, uh, yeah. So, you know, you can make a joke about it, but flip like flippantly speaking aside, you know, we do need to have some sort of a documentation, um, how formal that needs to be. I, I don't know, but I can't believe, I just can't believe that when they look at this whole rollout, that no one is, is at the table saying like, okay, how are we going to provide proof of vaccination? Another, another example I'll bring up that, that scared me quite a bit is how, how comprehensive are the records? I'm encouraging everyone listening to this podcast. You can access your, your records online, access your records to make sure that they're correct. Because when my father went for his second vaccine, they had no record of his first vaccine. The only, yeah, the only wow. way that he was able to get a second vaccine is because he retained the paperwork. And 
that, you know, that the other piece of that is like snowbirds, like do Canadian, does the Canadian government know how many Canadians that were in the United States or another country that was vaccinated there are, have those records been fully up to date, which is why when I hear things like, you know, we have 70% of our population vaccinated, I'm like, ah, with a margin error, margin of error of what? You have, you have 70% of the population vaccinated who have walked through the doors. But let's be honest, how many of those are actually on the record saying that they've actually been vaccinated? That's, that's here nor there. Um, that brings us to the last part because we are literally aiming for the last hour. And we're going to combine the last two parts because we have had such an amazing conversation so far. But And I, this is a conversation that I brought up in the last, elect, last uh, roundtable, but federal election. Um, Usually you can tell a federal election is coming when politicians start announcing they're not running for re-election. So we had this week, Wayne Easter, uh, MP for uh, PEI. Uh, uh, earlier this month, we had Mumalak Quack Quack from None of It announced. We've had uh, Bruce Stanton, the Deputy Conservative House, uh, the Deputy Conservative Speaker of the House, uh, announced that he's not running. We are seeing people announce that they are not running for re-election. On top of that, hey, the political House chairs are moving in the House of Commons as well. Earlier this month, and this is why I'm combining everything, earlier this week, actually last week, we had a Green Party, one third of the Green Party's uh, membership, pick up 33% of the Green Party uh, party left the party this, this, this past week. Are we heading into an election? Let's start with that, and then we'll dive into the Green Party's uh, uh, switcheroo later on. Do you believe so we're heading we're, into the? Do you believe we're heading into an election either in August or the fall? The fall, the fall. I think what'll happen is um, we're going to get through the summer. Like Justin, I've said this on your podcast before. Justin mm-hmm. Trudeau loves the summer. He does great in the bathing suit competition uh, part of of the campaigning period. And what'll happen is kids will go back to school. Hockey registration will start. People will go back to work. September will feel like this moment of normalcy for one minute, maybe two and a half, and the writ will drop. And we will we will go to the polls uh, just before uh, Thanksgiving. Okay, I can see that. Are the parties ready? Because you, you saw earlier this week that the Conservatives acclaimed every single MP for the Conservative Party in Alberta. All 33 of them, not 34, because they still have one seat that they have to win to make it a clean sweep. But 33. Yeah, in Edmonton, yeah. Are the parties ready? Because I don't think they are. I do not think the NDP are even close to being ready. I do not think the Bloc Quebecois wants an election. I think the Liberals want an election because they think they could potentially win because they have a leader of the opposition like Joe Clark, who people don't know, but we all know what happened with Joe Clark. He went on to win. Aaron O'Toole isn't a known quantity. His favorability and non-favorability ratings are really low right now. Do the Trudeau government, does the Trudeau liberals believe they could actually win an election if it was held in the fall? Uh, you know, uh, does the Liberal Party or does the infrastructure that supports the Justin inf- Trudeau? Does the infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think that they are thinking that on the other side of vaccinating a country and, and building back to economic recovery and a budget that's that's bought enough votes um, for key groups, I think they think that they can take it. Um, you have to understand that the NDP 
is has got to be incredibly unmotivated for an election because they really do bolster the 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 liberal government and so they kind of have it the best of both ways right like they have like so few people voting for them and yet they hold so much power in the house of commons um and you know the the you know the 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 block you know can they've got it perfect because they they're like okay listen (laughs) the liberals can be the head of head of the government but we are the neck and shoulders and we're just is turning that head in the direction that we so see fit. And so uh, the, those two parties directly benefit from a, from a ni- minority government because it gives them an asymmetric voice in the House of Commons. So they have to be incredibly unmotivated. Plus, I think in the case of, of Jagmeet Singh, he's got to know that he's out if he even loses a seat, if they don't maintain the momentum um, or, or just try to, to, to do something imaginative. I mean, his, his days are limited. Let's be honest. His, his days are limited. Um, That party's lost some, some great institutional power. I think of people like Nathan Cullen, um, you know, under, under Jagmeet Singh's leadership. So Megan Leslie from out in Halifax, like these are people who the the, the NDP are known for. And yet the last election you had Charlie Angus. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, yes. I, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. The end. Uh, yeah. So, um, so that's my state of the union on those two. As for the conservative party, I mean, it's going to continue to rip itself apart until it can decide what it wants to be. Uh, I've also said on this podcast that I think it has to decide once and for all, do we want to win an election and form government or are we just, or are we just going to try to just battle each other in the tent to prove whose voice is the loudest? I mean, what, what is your ultimate goal? I am becoming more and more convinced um, that, uh, that under Aaron O'Toole's leadership, they're not, they're not getting on the same page. They're not getting into a compelling narrative. They had that five point action plan. It's losing its salience in a, in a post vaccinated country. And they're not coming up with innovative policy ideas that allow people to say, Ooh, I think I could be conservative. I like that policy idea a lot. Um, and you're, you're starting to see, um, the, the, you know, the, the wagons, um, Pierre Polyev is just like, okay, when we're done with you, I'm ready. Um, Pierre Polyev is ready. Michelle Rempel Garner is going to take a run at this. I mean, you can even see the parties just like, okay, well, we can't figure out what, what keeps this guy up at night. And, and, but we're ready to find our forever leader. Right. I, like, I, like, it's I, like, I, I it's need like to talk about Pierre Polyver for two seconds. I need to talk about the quarter, whatever the heck video he just posted earlier this weekend. Hey, this quarter actually represents a penny. Your point? Like, I, I yeah. don't understand what he's trying to do. I understand it. It's it's bait for the base, but it's just anyway, that's my rant about Pierre Polivera right now, because it was just a random video that he posted and the whole lumber. Hey, this lumber used to cost 25 cents. Now it costs dollar twenty five because I know what lumber is. Okay. Yeah, but at least, yeah, but what's important to note here is that you and I are talking about his videos. We're not talking about Aaron O'Toole's videos. So well, he, he, put out a, sir. He, he put out a pride video, Aaron O'Toole, which really was a bad video. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. Anyway. Yeah, but again, again, like, you know, acknowledging that it's June, so it's pride month. So it's a due diligence exercise. Um, and, but I mean, you know, and he is, try, to be fair, he is trying. Um, the One of the things that's driving me crazy about this liberal government, well, it's two things on social issues is what is the deal? Don't march in a parade. Don't march in a pride parade, uh, Trudeau, and then continue to have uh, the blood ban against gay men. 
Like don't do one and then not have the other. Like you don't have data or research or science to support this antiquated um, yeah. policy that you have. And the other thing is of course on, a, on abortion, right? They, they love to, to, to tout it out to conservatives, but you have the votes to get in formal legislation uh, to protect women and you're choosing not to, because then you can use it as political folly. And all you're doing then is just putting all women as political capital. So no, sir. The good, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the liberal party. They, 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 they love to throw things at the conservative party to ensure that the conservative party looks bad, but they're not willing to do anything about it. So. Yeah, you bet. So what, wait a minute, what do I, what do I get? What do I get when I'm right about the writ dropping the first week of September and we go to the polls? You can decide. You get to be on the show that episode, the day it drops, because we are five days a week next season and it's going to be a pain to cover a lot of events that are happening. I just hope that it doesn't happen before October 18th because that's the Calgary election. And if it does, my job, it's just become a shitload. (laughs) It's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. Um, And it's going to be a lot for, for, for voters. Um, But please tell me since we're already over time that you're going to ask me about, about the G7, please. I will. Okay. If you have like an extra 15 minutes, we have like one last thing I want to talk about and then we'll go hit the G7. Okay. Yeah, you bet. I'm in for it. Green party of Canada lost 33%, uh, 33.3% of its caucus. Yes, it did. Does this, does this spell the downfall of the green party? The Green Party was Elizabeth May in 2015, was the Elizabeth May in 2019. I think anyone who is anyone will admit that the Green Party is not the Green Party. It is the Elizabeth May Party. When Elizabeth May announced in 2019 that she was no longer going to be leader, the Greens had a leadership race and Annemi Paul, the uh, lawyer from downtown Toronto, became the leader. Uh, we had her on the show. Take Go back and listen to the episode if you want. But the Green Party is now self-destructing because the former uh, liberal of the green leadership candidates, Glenn Murray, Judy Green, have left the party because of the issues around Israel and Palestine. Annamie Paul is a Jewish woman. I, I don't think there's any understand under, any underlying statement of that she isn't because she is uh, practicing uh, practicing Jew, just like my husband. And I don't know how to properly say that word, so I'm just going to say practicing Jew. Um, Annie Paul has trouble on the horizon. This next election is going to be a major confidence for the Green Party. If the Green Party loses Paul Manley's seat and Elizabeth May's seat, the Green Party, as we know it for the last 10 years, is officially dead. Do you agree? Um, I think Elizabeth May's seat is safe uh, because she is a kingmaker and she will find someone in that seat. So I think that... um, She's running again. Let's let's not put that out. She is running. She, she yeah. is nominated. So, but I think long after she vacates that seat, uh, I think it's going to be a safe green seat for, for, a, for a long time. The voting data suggests that constituents are very happy with it, with a green candidate in that seat. Uh, I don't think that it harms the fact that it's someone of the character and caliber of Elizabeth May, who to be fair, you're absolutely right. Is, is the green party. Paul is not, cannot continue to lead this green party. She cannot get a seat. Uh, I don't think she will get a seat. I think she just doesn't have that political charisma that's going to be required to get a seat. And I think that's going to continue to to be a problem. You cannot govern from outside the House of Commons. It just doesn't work. Um, you know, I care a lot about Atwin vacating her seat, not just because of the of the issue of of Israel and Palestine, but because I just don't support floor crossings ever. 
I vote for a party. And when you remove my self-efficacy as a voter to say, I, I now personally, because this is about me, want to represent and coalesce and support with a different party, um, you shortchange the voters who invested in you. I don't know why there shouldn't be like a vote or they have to get like 10,000 signatures from within their writing to say, you know, I need the support of my constituents and, and, my, um, and, and, and the people who live in my writing to move to a different political party. I, I feel this way even when conservatives do it, even when it's for conservatives benefit. When they, when we've uh, last year we had a we had a floor crosser. Oh, it might have been two years ago, uh, a floor crosser. Um, Leona Al, uh, the former deputy Alice leader. Alice yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and I didn't like it then uh, because I think that the people in that writing they they chose a party and they chose a candidate, and those things are not mutually exclusive. They're inclusive of one another. And, you know, I even, I, I feel this way so strongly that I even, I was, I even stood on the, on the flagship when, when they wanted to kick Derek Sloan out. I remember advocating that, that, and I, and I am not a Derek Sloan fan. I think he's everything that drives me crazy about trying to self-identify as a conservative. People are like, oh my God, you're just like Derek Sloan and how dare you. But I think, um, I think Aaron O'Toole should have gone back into that writing and say, we're going to have a, 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 a by-election between do you want to stay with Derek Sloan or do you want a more progressive candidate and, and let voters vote and choose. And then it's not solely sitting on the leader. Um, it's, it's, it, the self-efficacy remains with, with the voters. So I don't support the floor crossing ever. Um, but she has crossed the floor. 33% of, of that party is now gone. I do worry about Paul's seat as well. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm, I'd be interested to see if that, if that Fredericton writing, um, because she is the first person and first woman, but first person to be elected as a green party member outside of, of British Columbia. And that matters. Yep. Um, and I will be interested to see what voters then do. Do they continue to put their faith in, in the green party with a new candidate or do they stay with Atwin and, and the outcome of that should inform the discussion around the consequences and the mechanisms for floor crossing. So that's the kind of like the big piece that, that matters to me. Well, my, my um, one part of point on this is um, Fredericton, was formerly liberal. I would hate to be that liberal candidate that she beat. That's all I'm saying. No kidding. Right. Like, that's I'm sorry, but you are now part of the party that you wanted to beat in the last election. Like, okay. And you were nominated to be the next green party candidate in the upcoming election. So there was a lot of unknowns. I think, like you said, if Paul does not win in Toronto center, which I do not think she will, because Marcia Lent is going to probably win that, that riding. Um, and by-elections, you should never trust what by-elections say. She came second in the by-election, understandable. But let's be honest, by-elections, the voter turnout is way down compared to a nav- uh, an actual election. Right. This election, Marcia Len is probably going to win that riding, probably by larger margins than she won the by-election. So I would not put any stock into what Annamie Paul did in the by-election in Toronto Centre. That's all I'm saying. That's, that's I, my... I agree with that. And now... Without but further just wait. ado, so, oh, do, wait, 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 wait. So At- Atwin gets stuck with lazy rhetoric, right? Like what she, what she, what she said around what is an incredibly complex geopolitical issue yep. is then held to account uh, by, by Noah Zatzman, who is the senior advisor to Anime Paul. Yep. And it's, you know, a representative of, of, of not getting behind your MPs 
MP feels unsupported goes to the Liberal Party. Important to note then the, the 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 next iteration of that is that then she refines her point of view to something that would have been incredibly acceptable um, to, to the infrastructure of the Green Party, which is to acknowledge that there that this is an incredibly complex issue and 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 that there is no that there is the if this was a clear pathway to resolution, there would be a resolution between these two countries, I believe, or between these two entities. And um and and so she's refined her she's refined her rhetoric. And so maybe she does belong in the Liberal Party in a place where there's going to be people who are going to help her to have more comprehensive thoughts on on issues like this. This is something that Elizabeth May faced in the last election. She had a lot of political capital going into the 2019 election. I felt there was a lot of people that were talking about her her propensity to pick up real seats and real provide real legitimacy to the Green Party. But what continues to hold them up is is the fact that outside of the environment, they don't have a lot of concrete policy issues. Like when when May was asked about, like, you know, where do you stand on 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 cannabis? Where do you stand on on, in you know, on 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 education, uh, on healthcare? Um, you know, they're going to have to build a robust policy deck if they want to be a party of legitimacy. And and so, too, does now the NDP now that the Liberal Party has moved so far uh, to to the left. OK, my last topic here, and this is the topic that was on everyone's mind this weekend, because Let's be honest, it was a PR nightmare for any liberal insider who allowed this man to go to this summit. But the G7 summit this weekend in Cornwall, England, God bless uh, Boris Johnson for holding it. But Trudeau, God save the queen Queen on her 96th birthday, went to England uh, after telling everyone not to travel. I'm going to come home and I'm going to uh, isolate in a hotel, but not a government sanctioned hotel, but a government hotel. Nonetheless, that's another story for another day. And Trudeau is now the wants to be, I should say, the heir apparent to the dean of the G7 because he is the longest serving G7 leader of the party of the G7 leaders. And he is now aiming to be the next Angela Merkel. Let's not <laughs> for those who aren't watching this, Jennifer is basically about to burst at the seams by me saying that he's the dean of the G7. So I'm going to turn it over to her for a few seconds because I'm just going to go get a cup of water, get like a snack, because I feel like the next 10 minutes is going to be all Jennifer. So, Jennifer, what's on your mind about the G7 and Justin Trudeau? I don't even care about the travel part. I don't even care about the quarantine part. I don't even care about the fact that he couldn't even get a haircut to go. I don't care. I don't care. What I care about is that the purpose of the G7 is to discuss matters of global consequence. The big adjudicators needed to be uh, the three big things that needed to be adjudicated were Brexit, uh, a, a really critical strategy for China, and expertise in the cyberspace. You bring to the table Italy's prime minister, who at 73 years old is one of the leading economists and 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 architectural minds of financial matters. Joe Biden, who at 200 years old has decades of experience and understands the very nature of diplomacy and knows how to build policy with 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 technical correctness, operational feasibility and and strong political will. Macron, who has weathered incredible storms as really the king of Europe. 
and Japan, whose whose infrastructure is probably so elevated in terms of understanding how how digital issues will affect democracy. And you have Trudeau saying, I'm I'm a high school drama teacher and I'm going to be the dean of this operation. Like, are you crazy? I am shocked. I'm shocked with beyond shocked that at some point Joe Biden didn't open his wallet and say, hey, Justin, uh, we got some things we got to do here. Um, Here's some walking around money because your country's so broke that we think you booked this flight on air miles. Why don't you just enjoy Cornwall and we'll 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 get this stuff done and you can come back for the photo. You can be in the photo because we know you like photos like I'm just I'm just it is beyond me the the bravado that Trudeau believes he carries. And you know that if they were like, okay, this is a survivor thing. We're going to go to the G6. Is Canada getting picked? Like, I just don't even understand. I just, it is so to me, this sense of, I don't even know is entitlement. The word I don't even know, but it's just, you know, how can Canada possibly contribute in a meaningful way to the things that needed to be discussed? I just feel like we, as a, as a, as a global entity, we have such serious problems to solve and we need such serious people. And Trudeau is like, where are the cameras? And, and then, you know, says like, you know, I, I can broker a deal on Brexit and they're just like, Hey buddy, we're all good here. We're all good here. You know, it's okay, buddy. I just, it just it just absolutely floors me the 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 lack of of cognition of where you fit in this entire thing the one thing i want to point out though and this is not to stick up for justin trudeau because let's be honest i am not here to do that boris johnson boris johnson was the unknown entity for me in that in that g7 trudeau has been there a few times so people knew him uh joe biden like you said he's like ancient so everyone knows who joe biden is i'm pretty sure that's why they brought his wife just to make sure that he got to all his appointments on time uh marcon had just come come off a slap gate where he got slapped by a, a resident of france Ang- angela merkel was basically there just to say hey i'm here please don't fuck up can or the world after i leave but boris johnson was the unknown boris johnson is not doing well in england i from what i see he he seems to be doing well in the polls but his party seems to be turning on him because lockdown after lockdown after lockdown basically the jason kenny of england let's be honest so yeah there are some parallels there between yeah. the two I, I didn't see that. Boris Johnson shine in this uh, this G7. There was nothing of substance that I could point to that says, okay, Boris Johnson needs to be at the table. Let's be honest. Honestly, if it was the G2, I'd be okay with that. USA and Germany, let's do it. Because those two are the only two that actually, people were there to watch, right? Yeah, I mean, we really don't know, like we've heard that Boris Johnson shines more behind the scenes and in, in diplomatic negotiations than he does in front. Um, we know that uh, it's just the nature of, of how he carries himself and, and where his strengths lie. So I think like, I, I really kind of want to see like what the, what the proof in the pudding is uh, coming out of this. I am genuinely surprised that, um, that Biden didn't opt for a summit between the two of them in advance of the, of the G seven. I am, I am surprised by that. Um, especially because, you know, we, we just know that everybody has a vested interest in what, what Brexit looks like. Um, so yeah, did, but you know, the converse to that is that Boris Johnson could have really embarrassed himself and, and not given a fine reputation to, uh, to England. And I, 
I don't think that happened. So maybe some element of neutrality was okay. I just think we haven't really seen what plays out from this. I, I agree. And honestly, the last G7 summit, I believe, was in, if I'm not mistaken, was in Canada uh, with the Montreal. Yes. And that was the last time uh, Trump was the president. And they came out with a joint statement and Trump left and he didn't sign the statement and so on and so forth. Or he signed it yeah, and I mean, they it was, edited it. It was so fraught with drama. It was just like about, you know, like a, it was just like an episode of Days of Our Lives. So I do think that there was a bit of level setting for this G6 to go back to really those origins of when they were a library group. I like how you call it G6. I'm not subconsciously, subconsciously you're calling it G6, but you're calling it it's G6. G6. It's G6 in Canada. It's G6 in Justin. Or uh, as he would say, Justin and the G6. Yeah, he's the dean of the G7 now. Let's just, oh my let's, God, no. Let's, no. let's just let that sink in. Justin Trudeau is the longest serving member of the G7. Hard, hard pass. Hard pass. Um. I don't think anything came out of the G7 this year. China was a big topic. I understand that was a big thing. I hope to God, and I know this is, we're going really far into our 15 minutes, which was 10 minutes ago. I hope to God, the Michaels were brought up. I hope to God, the two Michaels were brought up when it came to China. If Justin Trudeau did not bring up the two Michaels to Joe Biden, to any of the leaders of that uh, G7, then he needs to get a swift kick in his butt because those two men need to be home and with everything going on and all the dirty issues. And I know we have our two followers in China and that's probably going to end here soon. But if China does not let those two men go, I, I think we need to start figuring out plan Z because plan A through Y is not working. Well, you know, I don't, I, I don't understand why in the first meeting, you know, Trudeau didn't say 30 days, 30 days, you've got 30 days to get the two Michael, you've created this, this, well, you're the U S not Joe Biden. The U S has created this challenge for us uh, through, through the extradition offer that, or uh, order that, uh, that, you know, tied our hands 30 days, 30 days to get our two Michaels home or we're sending Meng back to China. I agree. And the fact that that should have been the first meeting that should have been the the fact that Trudeau couldn't get a sit down meeting with Biden tells you where his place in the world is. Justin Trudeau and his people tried to get a a sit down meeting with all the leaders. Biden didn't want one. Supposedly, this is all from what reports are saying. All they got was a passing at a party. So. Yeah, I mean, wh- what would they want, right? Like they they had a they had a sit down. I'm when he was first when Biden was first selected. I'm I'm imagining it was very unimaginative. Um, you know, Canada has rare moments to exercise its its power. China is one of them. Uh, to say, like, listen, we we have serious issues with China. We have serious issues with China, and 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 they are a trade partner to us at a time where we have no we have no leverage power because of the deficit. Um, yeah, no, it, it should be remarked on all Canadians uh, and they should think about that when they when they go to the polls that they have. We have a leader that the our, our greatest trading partner and probably our, our greatest ally is like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to do real business. I'm here to do real business and, and we'll, we'll catch up at another time. Agreed. Um, with that, we are now an hour and 20 minutes into our show because that's how great we don't even realize what time it is. And. Jennifer and I just have a tendency to keep on talking and we love it and our viewers love it. Our listeners love it. So 
Jennifer, thank you so much for doing this. Once again, our last political roundtable before you leave to, for Geneva. So good luck on your trip. I hope to be able to connect with you in August before you leave. If not, uh, good luck and enjoy your time in uh, another country, which I hope by that time, everyone else will be able to as well. Me as well. Me as well. And uh, thanks, you know, thanks for doing this. I speak on behalf of a lot of Canadians. I love this podcast and thanks for having me on again. Oh, thank you uh, to my listeners and to the viewers. Uh, Jennifer's information is in the show notes. Follow her, go to subscribe to her podcast. It is enlightening and is a great a listen for whatever you're doing throughout the day. So Jennifer, once again, thank you so much for doing this. Great to be here. This episode was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates. 